If you were uh, with us last Lord's Day Sabbath, we looked at what is called the humiliation of Jesus Christ. And when we consider the humiliation of Jesus Christ, uh, we aren't to think that all that consists of the humiliation of Christ is simply him taking on flesh. That's not the humiliation of Christ in and of itself. Although it is an important aspect of the humiliation of Christ, that's not what is the essence of the humiliation of Christ. But at its very center, the humiliation of Christ is this, is that the eternal Son did not allow the glory of his person to overshadow his humanity. He did not allow his glory right, to be seen. He wasn't walking down the streets glowing. Uh, he divested uh, he veiled his glory and some of his div- divine uh, prerogatives, and one of those would be his glory. Now, we are to, not to think, though, that all of the eternal son's divine aspects or prerogatives were veiled. There, there are certain aspects of Christ's divinity uh, that was communicated to his humanity. And if they weren't communicated to his humanity, it would destroy the union of his person. One of those would be the doctrine which we call impeccability, which we say that Jesus Christ was unable to sin in his humanity, that his divine uh, person would stop his humanity, his human nature from sinning. That is an example of, of his divine personality being communicated into his humanity. Because what would we say? His divine person could not sin, but his humanity could sin? That would destroy the, human, the, the, the unity of the person of Christ. And we're going to look at another aspect of uh, the divinity of Christ being communicated to the humanity of Christ uh, this evening. We want to now consider an, a doctrine that I believe is at the heart of our salvation in Jesus Christ, something that I think that we need to recover in the church, something that we don't speak of often because it's very mysterious or it might be too Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox to us, but it's very in line with the scriptures and it's very in line with our Protestant and Reformed tradition. So this evening, in the same vein of the incarnation, and uh, we learned many things about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, did we not this morning? That he is that life that comes and shines in dark places, uh, that he is the one uh, whose governments will have no end, his kingdom will be eternal. But also, we are to consider something else about what the incarnation preaches to us. And I do believe that the incarnation preaches many things to us. And one of the things, and what I want to argue this evening, is the incarnation, what it shows for us, is that the incarnation is the means by which mankind's nature is advanced in order that we may partake in the beatific vision. The incarnation is the means by which mankind's nature is advanced in order that we may partake in the beatific vision. I want to do this in two points. If you don't get the points, that's, that's fine. Uh, the, number one, the need for our nature to be advanced. And then number two, the incarnation as the means 
by which our nature is advanced. Number one, the need. And number two, the incarnation as the means. And I, I want to challenge your thinking this morning. And in doing so, I want you to think with me. Right? Um, let's, let's climb up this, this hill together uh, along with the great theologians of the past and consider this, this grand doctrine, which is called the beatific vision. Let's consider the first point, and that is our need for our, the need for our nature to be advanced in order to participate in the beatific vision. The need for our nature to be advanced in order to participate in the beatific vision. Saints, if someone was to ask you, what is the purpose in your life? What is man's chief end? What would you say? Well, if you're reformed... <laughs> you would say that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the, that's the saint's chief end in life. That is your purpose in life, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But how do we do that? How do we enjoy God forever? What does the enjoyment of God entail? This begs the question of what, what we created for. Why did God create man? What was the telos, the, the theological end, the end goal, the ultimate end, the final destination for man? What was his purpose? What does it mean to be saved in Christ? And what was God's ultimate purpose in sending his son to live, die, and rise for us? Those are important questions for us, is it not, Christians? We want to know why we are here. We want to know what this enjoyment of God means. And I think the great 4th century church father, Basil of Caesarea, gives us the answer. He says, you were created that you might see God. You were created that you might see God. The Reformed Dutch theologian Hermann Boving says, Humanity's blessedness indeed lies in the beatific vision of God. This blessed state, the beatific vision is another way of saying the most happy vision. The most blessed vision, the, the, the most happiest one could be, is a vision of God. We were created to worship God as we behold him face to face. Now, again, this doctrine in recent times has gone under attack. And it's gone under attack in this way. It's not spoken of. When's the last time that you have considered and read a book on the beatific vision? Because we think that all that we were created for and our ultimate end, our happiest state is going to be when we get to heaven. That's the most blessed state and happiness for the Christian. I just got to make it to heaven and that's it. Or, and if we want to be more um, earthly, having my family in order, having all of my relationships intact, having my bills and debt paid, having my children going to good schools. But friends, 
you were created for something so much greater. If there's anything that you can get from this lesson is this. You were created for something so much greater than you could ever imagine. And that is face-to-face communion with God. That is, that is the happiest vision. That will be the happiest you will ever be. I think about when I'm at Disneyland. I think I'm the happiest I am. Or when uh, my wife gives me the okay and I finally get to go to Luigi's or something like that. That's the happiest I'm going to be, right? But no, it's when we see God face to face. The beatific vision is something that we should long for, something that we should, that we should consider when we think about salvation and the gospel, when we pray. In fact, this vision of God is what was ultimately purposed to Adam in the garden. In the garden, God imposed a covenant upon Adam called the covenant of works. And Adam was to do many things, but in a nutshell, he was to walk by faith in trusting and believing in God. And if Adam obeyed, if he, if he passed this probationary period, he would have earned many rewards, Sabbath rest, immutable life, all those things. But the chief of Adam's reward that was promised to him was the beatific vision. That was at the very apex of of all these wonderful things that Adam would have got. This chief goal, end, would be face-to-face communion with God, a, a heightened communion bond that goes beyond Adam knowing God, but him seeing God. But we know that Adam fell in the covenant of works, and because of sin... Not only are we unable to see God, but we are dead in trespasses and sin. And this is why the Reformed have said that in order for us to see God, our nature must be advanced. Westminster Larger Catechism says in question 39, why was it requisite that the mediator mediator should be man? In other words, why was it fitting that the eternal son should become man? Answer, it was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption as sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. Now, of all those things we've talked about already, the obedience to the law, We talked a little bit about the suffering and making intercession for us, but it says we need our nature to be advanced. Isn't that weird? Why would they put that? That's a a requisite for the mediator to be man. We needed our nature to be advanced. That seems strange because when we think of why Jesus came, we tend to think that all the reasons why he came is simply twofold. To live and die for us. Amen. He did need to do that. But also, he needed to come and to advance our nature. Now, why does our nature need advancing? Okay, now stay with me here. Let's consider Adam in the garden. What was the chief goal that Adam was working towards? The beatific vision. That's Adam's chief end. He's working toward this goal of the beatific vision. We can say that Adam, the natural man, 
was working toward a spiritual goal. The natural man's working toward a spiritual goal to see God face to face, a heightened communion bond where he would have face-to-face communion with God. But there's a problem with a natural man in here. I'm talking about Adam before he fell into sin. Adam in a state of pure nature as created man. There is a problem with man trying to earn a spiritual gift. What's the problem with that? He can't do it. He cannot do it. Can anything natural earn anything spiritual upon their own merit and work? Natural men cannot do anything to earn a spiritual reward. Even Adam, pre-fall, even before Adam fell, he could not earn anything from God. This is why our confession in chapter 7, paragraph 1 says this, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could not obtain the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, what he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. Now notice the language. We'll break this down a little bit. Notice the language. The first line reads, the distance between God and the creature is so great. The distance between you and God is so great. Now this is before Adam fell. The distance between God and Adam, or God and Adam, before Adam fell, is so great. Now, that doesn't mean, when when it says distance, it doesn't mean that God is so far from us. Like, if you have a friend in New York, the distance between you and your friend in New York is by way of miles, right? He's a long, or she's a long way away because she lives in New York, or he lives in New York, and you live in California. But our confession is not talking about the distance as far as a proximity distance, but rather the distance between us and God is an ontological distance. God is so distant from us because he is God and we are human. We are finite. Amen, right? (laughs) That is why we can't approach or merit anything from him because we are so far from him because we are creatures. He is the creator. We cannot bridge the gap between the creature and the creator. We can't approach the creator because we are creatures. And we can't be rewarded by the creator because we are creatures. We cannot be rewarded by the creator, by God, because we are creatures. This is why our confession says this. And I want you to notice the dilemma here. You can't earn anything from God. So what needs to happen Our confession says, yet, they can never have been attained the reward of life, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part. And he was pleased to express by way of covenant. Here's the argument in a nutshell. In order for us to earn a spiritual gift, in order for us to bridge the gap between us and God, God must condescend. God must come down and meet us where we are at. And how does he do that, saints, with regards to Adam in the garden? He does that by way of covenant. You do this, Adam, and you get that. This voluntary condescension that our confession is speaking of is the covenant that God made 
with Adam. Because he is a creature, Adam, he can't obtain the beatific vision upon his own work. But God made a way that Adam could obtain the beatific vision through a covenant. So, man can't earn the beatific vision. He can't earn the spiritual reward. So what does he need? He needs a voluntary condescension. Does he, get, does he have that? Yes, God comes down and makes a covenant with him. If you do this, you receive this. In other words, what God did was he laid a road down for Adam. And he said, Adam, if you walk along this road, you will get this. He provided the road for him. But saints, and hear me now, not only did God provide a way in the form of covenant, but God also infused Adam with all the gifts of grace in order that he may obtain the reward. So he lays the road down for him, he gives him a car, and he puts all the gas in here. He says, Adam, I'm going to give you everything that you need in order that you may obtain this reward. All of the gift of grace. That is what our Reformed tradition have said concerning the nature of Adam. Adam was not created in a state of pure nature, but he was given the gift of original righteousness and holiness. And that gift was infused unto him. Consider some of our Reformed tradition. John Calvin, he says, I feel pleased with the well-known saying, which has been borrowed from the writings of Augustine, that man's natural gifts were corrupted by sin and his supernatural gifts were drawn from him. Meaning by supernatural gifts, the light of faith and righteousness, which have been sufficient for the attainment of heavenly life um, and everlasting joy. Wolebius, the image of God consists partly in natural gifts and partly in supernatural Franciscus Gomarus, human being before the fall were being made perfectly without any stain or lack of either body or soul. For human beings did not only consist of soul and body as essential parts, but also of these super additives, its super added ornaments, namely being endowed with original justice, holiness. Now what these, and there's more to that quote, but what these men are saying is essentially this. That Adam was created in a twofold way. Simple, right? Adam was created in a twofold manner. He was created with natural gifts, and he was given supernatural gifts. Now, these natural gifts include all of those properties of what it means to be human. What does it mean to be human? It means to think, to be rational, to have a mind, to will. Adam was human, just like we are human. But also... Adam was infused by the Spirit with supernatural gifts. And those supernatural gifts include original righteousness and holiness. And the supernatural gifts were to do this. They were to aid and they were to assist Adam so that he may obtain the beatific vision. Adam, you want to earn a spiritual reward? Well, you can't do that naturally. So God infused Adam with supernatural gifts to aid and assist him 
to earn that supernatural goal. And the reason why Adam needed such aid, again, is because no creature in and of himself can rise up and merit anything from God. If Adam, with his natural gifts, if if Adam, strictly as man, tried to earn a spiritual reward, and that is the beatific vision, could he do it? No. So God condescended and gave Adam all that he needed. This is why we say Adam's fall was so great. Because he had everything he needed to earn his reward for him and for us. But he failed. Franciscus Junius said, this is the state of natural theology in Adam. When nature was intact, that from principles shared, veiled and imperfect, it had to be nurtured and caused to grow by reasoning and then perfected by grace. Adam needed assistance because the natural man cannot earn anything for himself other than that which is natural. This is why we should deny the heresy of Pelagianism, which says that man, apart from any grace from God, can earn the favor and merit of God. Adam was not a Pelagian, nor was God. And I'm talking even before he fell. And I hope you see from this point alone that there is nothing that you earn on your own accord, but everything is given to you by God. Adam needed the gift of grace. And as a result of Adam's fall, what did we lose? Well, with regard to nature, what did we lose with regards to Adam's nature? The answer is twofold. First, we lost those supernatural gifts that were infused to Adam to aid and assist him. We lost grace. All the supernatural aid that we needed, we lost it. Can we get it back? No. And in losing those supernatural gifts, hear me now, man has no potentiality. If you want to see God face to face, guess what? You cannot do it because you have lost those supernatural gifts, in order that you may have and receive that supernatural reward. And secondly, Adam's nature was corrupted. Adam's nature was corrupted. His nature that was created to be advanced took an infinite step backwards. As a result, all of Adam's human faculties are corrupted by, corrupted by sin. Now, let me explain something to you real quick. When we say that Adam's human nature was corrupted, we don't mean that Adam stopped being human. Because we, like we say that a lot, where our human nature is corrupted. We're not less human. Our essence did not change. Adam is still human. But what change are those human faculties? our ability to reason, think, will. Let me give you an example. We lost the ability to rationalize things. I tend to do this more often than I should. When I'm at Luigi's, when I'm at my brother's house eating Filipino food, I tend to overeat. Overeat to the point where I get sick. My wife can tell you. Right? 
We overeat to the point where we are nauseous, where we are sick, and we say to ourselves, why in the world did I do that? Because you're a sinner. That is an effect of the fall. That's not rational, is it? To eat till you get sick? No, but that's an effect of the fall. Your human faculty of being rational, to think things clearly, has been lost. Because all you want now are things for yourself. That's one example. So to summarize this point, Adam was created in such a way where his nature would be advanced to see God. God made a way for Adam to see him through covenant, but also endowed him with supernatural aid toward that goal. Adam failed to keep the covenant, thereby causing his supernatural gifts, original righteousness and holiness and all those other things, to be lost. And his natural gifts, his ability to think, to be rational, to will, to be corrupted by sin. Adam took an infinite step back as far as nature goes. And as a result, there is no way that man can partake of his chief and highest goal. There is nothing that you can do to earn the one thing that would make you the most happy. So what do we need to partake of the beatific vision? We need our nature to be advanced, which leads to our second and last point, and that is the incarnation is the means by which man's nature is advanced and enabled to participate in the beatific vision. Okay? <clears throat> the essence of the, se- of the second point is this. If you want to know already, the, this, this second point in a nutshell is this. And you don't, don't fall asleep after you hear this, because <laughs> here are the explanation of it. Man comes to partake of the beatific vision by union with the grace-infused humanity of Jesus Christ. Man comes to partake of the beatific vision by union with the grace-infused humanity of Christ. So, real quick, when we say we're in union with Christ, we say that a lot, How are we in union with Christ? We are in union with the human nature of Jesus Christ. And all that Christ's human nature possesses, all the graces that he has in his humanity, is given to us. Because of Adam, we need our nature to be advanced in order to see God. We need supernatural gifts, but also we need our sin to be removed. And it is Jesus Christ who advances our nature and prepares us for the beatific vision. How does he do that? How does Jesus Christ advance our nature? Does he do so by obeying the law? Does he do so by dying on the cross? Or maybe he advances our nature by rising from the dead. The answer, saints, is first and foremost, none of these. Rather, Jesus Christ advances our nature in the incarnation. Jesus Christ advances our nature in the incarnation. And this is so, this gets me excited. Before Christ ever did one work, he already advanced us to a place far beyond where Adam couldn't. Let's remember, friends, it is the eternal Son who assumed body and soul. The Son took into his person 
a true human nature. And his human nature, without any merits based on good works, without any rewards that he had done, without anything, Jesus Christ's human nature was anointed with the fullness of grace because of the hypostatic union. Because of this union between the human nature and the divine nature, his human nature was given the gift of grace without measure by the Spirit. Consider some of the commentary from the early church. Uh, Buchanan, what is the effect of this personal union? What, meaning, what was the effect of the human nature being united to the divine nature? The conferring of gifts by which the human nature in Christ's person was adorned and by which he excels all creatures in wisdom, goodness, holiness, power, majesty, and glory, which the fathers called the deification of flesh, the scholastic's habitual grace. Augustine, the Son of Man, was sanctified from the beginning of his creation when the Word was made flesh because one person became Word and man. Therefore, he was sanctified by himself in himself, because the one Christ who is word and man sanctifies the man in the word. The human nature was sanctified because he was united to God. And these quotes are simply following the plain teaching of Scripture. Colossians 2.9, For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I think the one that probably says it all, John 3.34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. On the account of the hypostatic union and incarnation, Christ in his humanity, hear me now, is sanctified and elevated. He's elevated to a place far beyond angels. And the Reformed and the following, the Patristics and Scholastics would say, he's elevated just up to the point of deity. In his humanity, he is gifted with grace without measure by the Spirit. And here's what I want us to focus in on as we come to a close. And one of those graces that Christ receives in his humanity is the beatific vision. In other words, Jesus from the moment of conception in his humanity, possessed the beatific vision. From the moment of conception, he sees the Father. This is one of those things, those divine properties that is communicated from his divine nature to his humanity, or it will destroy the unity of his person. Thomas Aquinas says this, Now the soul of Christ since it is united, the word in person is more closely joined to the word of God than any other creature. Christ in his human nature is, close, is so close to God than any human, any angel. Hence, 
it more fully receives the light in which God is seen by the word himself than any other creature, meaning the supernatural light that we need to see God, Jesus Christ in his humanity has it than any other creature. And therefore, more perfectly than the rest of creatures, it sees the first truth itself, which is the essence of God. In other words, Jesus earns the beatific vision not by work, but rather on the account of his humanity united to his divine personality, he sees the Father immediately. He sees what the Father is doing immediately. This is different from you and I. We see what the Father is doing immediately. We observe the created order, and we see the effect, and we say, oh, God did that. But Jesus sees what the Father is doing without the effect. How else will his human will follow his divine will? We'll get there next, in a few weeks. And this is what Jesus says in John 6:46. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from the Father, God. He has seen the Father. And what this means for us is this, saints. From the moment of conception, the moment Mary found, even before that, found out that she was pregnant, Jesus earned for us the beatific vision. That vision that was lost in Adam, the moment of conception, Jesus won it for us. From the moment of conception, our nature that was corrupted in Adam is restored and advanced and is elevated to partake of our chief and highest goal, the beatific vision. And how do we participate in this beatific vision? How can we come and partake of the most happy vision? Christ, from the fullness of grace in his humanity, he distributes that grace to his people by the Spirit. That is why we say Jesus Christ is life-giving Spirit. He gives the fullness of what he possesses in his humanity to you. He shares it with you. So our nature is elevated by adoption, and it shares in the elevated human nature of Christ. This is what John says in John 1.16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From the fullness of grace that is in Christ, we receive that grace. And that grace is what reproportions us and advances our human nature in order that we may see God. So how does Jesus advance our nature? Simply put, he does so by becoming man. By becoming man, our humanity is elevated to see God. We become that which we were destined to be in Jesus Christ. In closing, saints, what are some of the uses that we can take away from this lesson? Well, I just have a few. Number one, this lesson helps us in our sanctification. Sanctification is that doctrine that speaks of the Spirit is removing all of those sinful inclination and vices that are in us in order that we may be conformed more and more into the perfect image of Jesus Christ. Right now, if you are a believer in Christ, right now, God, by his Spirit, is preparing you to see him. 
Do you know that? Every Sunday morning, Sunday evening, you are being prepared. Every time you open your Bible, this is why Bible reading is so essential and reading books, good theology books is so essential. God is preparing you to see him face to face. And that's the goal of sanctification, is it not? God is elevating our nature by infusing grace into our hearts in order that we may see our Lord. We see him now, right now, don't we not? We see him by faith. And saints, this is what we need to recover when we speak of salvation. When we speak of salvation, salvation is not taking us back into the state that Adam was in in the garden. That's not what it means to be saved. It doesn't mean for our nature to be similar to Adam's nature in the garden. But what salvation means is that our nature is elevated to Christ's human nature and to this very state in the one who became flesh. And in union with Christ's human nature, we partake of the beatific vision. This is also, lastly, what we are to think about when we consider the incarnation. To bring it all home when we open gifts in a few weeks, or uh, days. <clears throat> when we think of the incarnation, saints, it's not merely that God becomes man and then at age 30 he begins to earn rewards for us. It's not what we are to think. That's, that baby in the manger is just, a baby, and then we have to wait till age 30, and then at age 30, then he starts to earn rewards for us. But friends, at the moment of conception, there was something happening in the virgin's womb. At the moment of conception, Christ was working out our salvation. At the very moment of conception, in that virgin's womb, Jesus Christ earns for us that what Adam lost for us. In the womb, he already is showing that he's better and far superior than Adam. He earns for us the vision of God and saints, this is the ultimate longing for the Christian, is it not? I hope that this is your ultimate longing. I hope that your family and friends are saved. I hope that everything that you want and desire in life will be given to you financially and physically and all those other things. But that and those things are not going to be the happiest you will ever be. But the happiest you will ever be in that moment of time when you will no longer need faith. You will no longer need your Bible. You will no longer need systematic theologies. You will no longer need a preacher, the Lord's Supper, anything. You will need nothing to mediate this vision of God, but you will see God immediately. Hebrews 11.1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 1 Corinthians 13.12, for now we see in a mere dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be fully known, even as I have been fully known. Right now you see in a mirror dimly. But one day the mirror will be cleaned, and you will see your God for who he is. And lastly, 1 John 3, 2. 
Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. My longing, and I hope your longing, is not merely heaven. Not merely seeing your father and mother and grandmother and whoever that has been dead and now has gone to be with the Lord. Not the streets of gold, the mansion with many rooms that you will have. The saints, I hope your longing is to see Jesus Christ in all of his glory without anything in your way. I pray and I hope that that is your end times. When we think about end times, we get so caught up in when Christ will come and what will happen on earth and all these things, a thousand year reign. We need to recover the center of our end times is the beatific vision. That's the goal of the Christian. And right now, God, through the Son, by the Spirit, is preparing you for such vision. So obey him and long to see him because you will if you persevere. Let's pray.